Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 14 of the Trap Rock 101 podcast from Pirates of Poets. I am your host, John Burns. Appreciate you being with us. Episode number 14 features my conversation with uh, Rob Hill. Rob is a uh, he's a jack-of-all-trades in the Trap Rock world. He's not just a jack-of-all-trades. He is also a master of several of those trades. Uh, great guy, very interesting to talk to. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. We go some places that I don't think this podcast has gone before. Uh, but real quick, before we get into the interview, I want to remind you that this is the Trap Rock 101 podcast. Uh, you can find us at piratesandpoets.net slash troprock101. Uh, we are also on all the major podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and more. Just go to your favorite podcast app, search for Trap Rock 101, and you should find us. Uh, and please feel free to share uh, your favorite episode or all the episodes with your friends, fellow Trap Rock fans, fellow Parrotheads. Uh, I think this uh, this podcast has a lot to offer to folks, especially people who are newer to the genre, who are trying to learn more about the community and learn more about our roots. So if you enjoy it, please share it. All right, back to Rob Hill. Um, looking back on this conversation, on this interview, I realized that one of the things I kind of failed to talk about with Rob it's the fact that he is a singer-songwriter, uh, and I think that's probably what he thinks of himself as first and foremost. Um, he's put out several albums of his own music. He's also uh, had his songs recorded by several different artists, most notably Brittany Kingery. Uh, if you listen to the interview, we talk a lot about Brittany and Rob's working relationship with Brittany. Um, but I kind of feel bad because I feel like I, I neglected that aspect of Rob's music career. So, uh Definitely go check out his original music. Also check out his work with Brittany Kingery. Um, but on top of a singer-songwriter, Rob is a lot of other things. He is an event organizer. He worked uh, worked on Laid Back Attack, the uh, Pacific Northwest premier trap rock Parrothead event for several years. Um, he's also involved in lots of other events. He's involved with the Trap Rock Music Association. Um, he is a promoter, just the music in general. He's he's booked shows. He's booked full, full-blown tours. We talk about that in the interview. He's just really done a lot. Um, also, he brings a sense of humor um, and and a real funny slant to things. He's done a lot of uh, PR work and promotional work for different events, probably m- most notably Lu- Lone Star Luau. And he, and he brings some humor to those that really, they take them from just your standard, hey, register for the event, to something that really catches people's eye, makes them laugh, makes them share it. So, uh Check out when we when we get back around to event season, if event season ever comes back. Thank you, COVID, for all that. Check out Rob's uh, promotional post that he posts about Lone Star Luau and other events. So uh, anyway, you can find Rob online. Beachtownsongs.com is his website. So check him out. Enjoy his music and enjoy this conversation with Rob Hill. So I was, an, I was a board member of a charitable organization in Mexico that... Uh, and when I joined the board, I figured I needed to raise some money. And so I, I decided, let's have some fun and raise some money. And so I called up my friend, Brittany Kingry, and said, let's make a fundraising CD for this nonprofit organization in Mexico. And so we did that, and we planned a, a, an album release and, and went down there. And uh, we had shot a video for a song called Treasures, which was also known as the Buceria song, which was the name of the town that we were performing in. And, uh, and when that video came out, uh, I started getting, it, it blew up in the, in the area in, in Mexico. And then I started getting these messages from, uh, I think the first one was from permanent vacation radio and, uh, to, to alert me that, that the Brittany Kingry song treasures had been added to their playlist in regular rotation. And so I was in disbelief that there could be a thing called permanent vacation radio. <laughs> and so I started looking up and found out that they were, that they were not uh, one of a kind, that there were a number of uh, mostly internet-based radio stations that played this thing called Trap Rock, which, interestingly enough, I had um, years earlier when I did my album God Love in Mexico in 2009, when uh, it was partly tropical sounds and partly reggae and just a, a bunch of different kinds of blending of music, um, which I just for shorthand started referring to as tropical rock or tropical pop. 
And I didn't realize that anybody else was even using that term. And so when I saw I saw that there were radio stations identifying themselves as trop rock radio stations, uh, I thought, I've met my people. <laughs> and uh, and so here I was thinking I was do I was all alone and doing this kind of music out there. And of course I knew that 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 it was a uh, you know a, a Buffett like um, style, but I didn't. What I didn't know is that there were that that parrot heads were an organized species and <laughs> uh, had created this network of music fans all around the well, country and the world. And suddenly, here we were having put out this record and video that we thought was just going to entertain a few people for a few minutes, uh, and it opened up doors and so from that uh really a a a key uh twist or or plot point in the story is when uh i sent the cd to beachfront radio which was you know at the time uh unrivaled as the top um uh trap rock radio station in the country and they loved the britney kingry songs and we started talking with them and and um, and Jeff, uh, DJ Jeff Allen and Carol uh, met Brittany in Seattle. I happened to be out of the country at the time, but we met. They met Brittany in Seattle at Laidback Attack, um, which was also a big thing. When I started researching, well, if there's trop rock, there must be trop rock events or festivals, right? And so I looked it up, and lo and behold, there was a big one coming up just down the road from where I live in Seattle called Layback Attack. And I was elated until I realized that it was being held on the weekend before I got back from a family reunion trip in Ireland, so I, I couldn't attend it. Um, but it, it ended up being uh, – I ended up meeting Jeff and Carol there myself just after the festival was over. And, uh, you know, they were so um, integral – in in in, uh, in launching Brittany and me, uh, because they, uh, well, Jeff championed the music in the last six months of his life. He was cheerleading for Brittany more than anybody. I think uh, he really felt like he had found uh, a star, and so he became a big advocate of our going to Key West that November, uh, which uh, which we did on kind of short notice. That was was to have been his last. Um, uh, meeting of the minds, but obviously died a week or so before that. Um, but that was that was our introduction. Actually, our first performance in the trap rock world ever was uh, was at the welcome, Beachfront Radio Smoke and Tuna Welcome Party in 2013, which, because of Jeff's death, had become this sort of uh, celebration of life wake. Uh, so it was kind of an emotional experience as well. Wow! So y'all y'all just skipped all the. Uh, house concerts and smaller events and everything and just went straight to meeting of the minds. Yeah, that was the, that was the introduction and then and, and, uh, and the house concerts and all those other events grew out of that uh, because, uh, you know, well, obviously all the parrot heads and trap rock fans are assembled in one place. And so we got to reach a lot of people, which is part of the, you know, beauty uh, of the door that's opened to uh, musicians like myself um, because of this network, I mean, it's hard enough even to develop a local following, but to get to get any kind of a national following is a years long project. And but for us, because of the Trop Rock Network and the Parrotheads and Beachfront Radio, it became a weeks long process for us. And that uh, that Britney's introduction and and by extension my introduction, since I wrote the music and produced the CDs and, and accompanied her. Uh, that that we had this almost instant uh, network of people uh, that was just a, a an awesome experience, especially at my age, where you where you think you know you're forty. I think I was forty eight at the time, or something like that, and and uh, and thought my rock star days were behind me, and then all of a sudden uh, I've got. I'm playing shows in all four corners of the country, plus Mexico and Canada. So that was exciting. You know, I hadn't thought about this, but given the, the, uh, you know, how widespread the community is and the genre and the network that's built up now, 
Um, if you show up kind of like you and Brittany did with a polished product, you know, a CD to, to sell and push, it's almost easier to build a national following than it is a local following. If, if you step into this community with the right credentials already. Well, that's, that's an interesting observation, but I, but I think as, as unusual as the observation is, it's absolutely true. And the, and the, uh, you know, it, the idea, I mean, people locally would be surprised to find out that I play all over the country. Um, but yeah, the, the, the meeting of the minds um, becomes a sort of a uh, trade show of sorts where you're showing your wares to all these music buyers all over the country. It's, and it's just, uh, it, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, it's it's South by Southwest or um, CMJ or something like that, I guess, for the only but 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 for the participants in it, it's 10 times more efficient uh, than any <laughs> of those just because the pool of artists is relatively small uh, and the and the fandom or the uh, the, uh, the the music, the genre is relatively narrow that, you know, basically everybody that's there is a big fan of this small genre. Whereas at an event like South by Southwest, you may have a lot of people that are small fans of a bunch of different genres. So it's right. so targeted that it just, it, it's, it's efficiency in, in, in facilitating uh, the ability to build a following and a fan network and a community really is, uh, is, is just, I, I think unmatched. And I've had, um, I've gone down with a, fr- a friend of mine who I just co-wrote a song with uh, recently. Uh, came down to Key West with me probably 2015 or so, and it was it was a, a slower year I think in terms of turnout. But he, but I was just introducing him. He wasn't particularly trop rock, but he's a great songwriter. And uh, and a few days into this, he he told me, Rob, I have not encountered in my life in music a group of people that are as open to hearing original music that they've never heard before as this group is. And, and that was, that was a poignant observation because that's true. I mean, how often do you run into an audience that is perfectly happy and maybe even prefers for you to play a song they've never heard. And so that makes, that makes our audience, I think really the, the, the most fertile and open-minded audience of any genre in the, in, in music. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there there is certainly a percentage of the of the overall community, and it's a big percentage that you know they'd rather hear you play a song that they have never heard than Margaritaville or Brown Eyed Girl or any of those right. songs. Right. And so I I I love to support other artists, particularly younger artists, and and really when you tell the story of what this community is, what the trap rock community is to some artist who's been, you know, struggling for five, 10, 15 years even, um, and say, this is what happens at Meeting of the Minds. And this is what, uh, this is what the potential is for you as an, as a, as a singer songwriter. And they're, they, they don't believe it really that they can't believe it. And I'm with good reason because, you know, it's so unique, but for example, um, we, we have this, uh, this wave or this, uh, this uh, 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 incoming wealth of young female performers in the genre. And for someone like, I mean, I knew before I met Isabella Stefania, before I met Aubrey Wallet, that they were going to explode on in, in our, within our audience and particularly Aubrey. And she, she did not believe it when I first, I think I heard her on a one a, and I um, messaged her and I just said, You're, this was kind of in the fall, September or October of last year. And said, uh, or maybe it was, it was two years ago that she burst onto, I think it was, I think it was last year. And I said, uh, you, you should come to Key West. It's, these are your people. <laughs> right. And, and she said, oh, yeah, I, I'll probably look into doing that next year. And I said, no, <laughs> you, you don't want to wait a year to do this. You need to come this time. And, and I, I wasn't the only person whispering in her ear. I know Sam Densler was as well. And, uh, and, when, and she came down, and I think she was an instant star and is going to be – I mean, she's got, I think, multiple TRMA nominations, and she's uh, 
that she's a great songwriter. Yeah, you uh, you were either the first or at, at the very least the second person to to clue me in on her. You know, probably about this time last year, I think you dropped me a note and said, "Hey, you have any room left for your shows in Key West? Because you need to check this this uh, girl out." And uh, and you were totally right because she's got some great stuff. And uh, I have I've only got to see her perform live a time or two, but she's a great live performer, and the the songs are great, the production's great, and. So this all leads me, I guess, to one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was, um, did you intend to become one of, if not the biggest champion of female artists in trop rock? Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I, I don't know if I set out to do that. I've always, uh, I, I think any, any serious musician has to acknowledge that the female voice is a much more interesting instrument <laughs> than the male voice. Yes. Uh, we, we even, you know, if you're a male singer, you're either good or you, or you're okay, or you suck or you're Bocelli, you know, there's not really a lot of room in between passable male vocals <laughs> and, and Bocelli. I mean, there's, it, it's a big gap, but there's not really you don't very often say, wow, that guy has this great spectacular voice. We just don't have the range to do that. So I, so I've always enjoyed playing with uh, female uh, singers. Uh, it also expands your repertoire because you can do duets and love songs and things like that. Uh, and so for years with Brittany, of course I was championing, championing Brittany who herself uh, really wanted to not be alone. <laughs> and right. so she, she would definitely do as much as she could to connect with other female established and upcoming female artists. And so, but I also feel like as a, as a promoter and I've been promoting music for one way or another for 20 years. Um, and uh, I always found that uh, when it came to turnout, when it came to marketing, that there is something about um, particularly promoting female themed events where you're showcasing female artists that it, that it also, besides being in my mind, a, a better musical experience, but particularly from a singing standpoint, it's also an easier event to sell. And so I, I used to do a lot of uh, female showcases in my earlier days of promoting events. Yeah. Cause I mean, obviously uh, Brittany and, and I want to talk about Brittany a little more in depth in a minute, but um, you were, you know, the first person to take Melanie Howe out on the road outside of her, you know, Southern draw roots. Um, of course, uh, we're talking about Aubrey Woolett. And and did you have you were in on Erica Sunshine Lee pretty early too, weren't you? Uh, I don't know what in on means, but I certainly became a. I played a. I played a <laughs> a backyard concert with her kind of accidentally we both showed up at, at it in Key West uh, in her first year there. Uh, so I, I'm sure I was one of the first to meet her, and I've always thought that she has all kinds of star quality as well. In fact, I don't, I don't know if, if Erica and Aubrey knew each other pre-Parrothead world or pre-Trop Rock world, uh, but they wrote a song together, which uh, if somebody else doesn't produce it soon, I'm going to – I'm going to put both of them on a plane and bring them out here and produce a song. It's called Lighthouse. And it's just gorgeous, spiritual, and trop rock at the same time. It's like got this genre-bending uh, sound to it. I think it's I, – I, as soon as they record it, it will be, it will be, a, it will be recognized as a trop rock song of the year candidate. And uh, so, yeah. But anyway, I, I, love, I love championing other artists. I enjoy other artists, and I especially um, – I, I guess I especially like to do that with female artists because, well, it's probably much less true than it used to be. But when I first came on the scene, the the, the male female balance among the artists was pretty out of whack. And the yes. and um, but to the melody question, I mean, it, she's another artist where you see her one time and you go, "That's a star." Somebody, she just needs to be in the. Uh, be in the spotlight and she'll, she'll become a star. And I think she already seemed like she was one, but, and I didn't realize I was, I was being a pioneer by saying, we need to, <laughs> we need to bring this asset on the road. I mean, she's so talented uh, musically, but she's also such a great presence in 
10 different ways, you know? And, uh, and for me, it's like, as, as somebody who, who's as much marketer as I am musician, sometimes the idea of promoting Brittany and Melanie together for a tour was, was like, it made my mouth water. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to be easy. This is shooting fish in a barrel. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a lot of talent and, and I mean, and it's still fairly unique, but at the time it was groundbreaking in this community to have a touring act that was two thirds female. Yeah. And that delivered. Oh, well, totally delivered. Yeah. Yeah. They delivered for sure. Yeah. And so, I mean, it was really even, you wouldn't even have, (laughs) if you looked at the marketing, it probably wouldn't have even have looked like it was two thirds female because I was, I was so, my name was in such small print and my picture was so small that you wouldn't even know when I was going to be there. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, Brittany, um, just to kind of, I guess, to go back in time a little bit before, before Brittany, um, Michelle Becker uh, won the first, I don't know, six or seven female vocalist of the year awards. And and not to say that she didn't deserve to win them because she did, but she had no competition um, right. until Britney showed up. She was the only female front person in the genre. There was a, on a national level, there were a few others, but they, they were all very local regional type acts. Um, so I just, the, the first year, what was it? 2011? Or was it fifteen? What what year did Britney win the first female vocalist award? Oh, the first one she won was two thousand fifteen. Fifteen, yeah. So I was sitting, uh, you know, out on the lawn at the Trap Rock Awards when that award was announced, and whoever I was sitting next to said something along the lines of Michelle Becker is going to be pissed. And I, <laughs> I said, I said, no, she's not. Trust me, she's she might be happier than Britney is right now. That somebody <laughs> else is 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 taking this award. You know, she's won it plenty of times and she is happy to see other females in the genre and being successful. Um, and, and, you know, Brittany was a, a trailblazer uh, in a lot of ways because Michelle was the only, you know, she was kind of the, the, the token girl in the boys club for a long time, I guess. Right. Well, and I think, it, I think that talk that speaks also to the growth of the organization itself, the TRMA, because uh, if you look at, if you look at back then, the nominees, I think, were generally in the female vocalist category, the same every year or um, uh, mostly the same anyway, uh, until Brittany arrived and then her name started showing up. And um, But, uh, for example, Heather Vidal's number, uh, name was on that list, uh, I think, every year. But she had never won until after Brittany uh, broke, broke the Michelle Becker barrier. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, that's, there's no doubt that's true. Michelle had a, um, ha- had a following within that organization that made it, made her unbeatable, but she was, I think probably the first one to say, please, <laughs> please somebody beat me. Right. And so, so, um, but what's really interesting is that if you look at, I don't have it in front of me, but I remember looking at the nominees for female vocalists now. And I believe aside from Heather, who's a, who's a, a mainstay on that list, um, that the other names, I mean, Michelle's not even nominated and hasn't been, I think for a couple of years and neither has Brittany. And so the, the two people that were, were, you know, the, the, the only, uh, female force that was strong enough to be winning those awards back in the uh, 13 to 17 or 18 range are now off the list. And there's these new names that have appeared there and they're all, I think Erica, Isabella and, um, uh, and Aubrey are all nominated and they're all powerhouses. I mean, they're, they're, these are, these are um, not just the top female talents in the genre. They're the top talents in the genre as far as I'm concerned. And so, uh, so it's a, it's a real transformation. It's good to see. Yeah. It's a, it's been very, very, um, I don't know how, what I want to say here. It's been very fulfilling to me to see it happen. Um, And I know for you, it had to be even more. Cause like I said, I think from the first time I met you, I was like, you know, this guy, whether he means it or not really wants to help. Uh, break up the boys club to say you know so <laughs> and it's been a lot of i mean it's you know it's been a lot of fun to see all this different different styles you know like you said females bring a different different voice into it but then there's so much 
there's so much variety just in in the three or four artists we've been talking about here. You know, they're mm-hmm. all they're all different. So, well, the, the, uh, the, uh, there's also, and I'm, I'm sure this is uh, is is part of the reason why they've all they've risen so quickly, which is true of Britney as well. Is that uh, we put a lot of work into the production on the on the recordings. I mean, we were not uh, phoning that in. Those were. Uh, expensive and uh, detail-oriented projects where, I mean, I Britney's Dream and Blue album, uh, to me, despite, you know, my obvious bias and having written most of the songs and, and been the producer, and uh, I I can listen to it now and say, I still think this is one of the best trop rock, rock, top trop rock albums ever. And, uh, and I still, unlike any other record I've ever been involved in at any level, I still listen to it and say, I can't think of anything I would do differently. And, uh, and then I listen to Isabella and Erica and Aubrey, not only their, um, their, uh, their recorded music, but also their videos, which Brittany and I also uh, put effort into, although without budget, we, <laughs> we just did it ourselves. Let's have a few drinks on the beach in Mexico and make a, make a movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but we did them, you know. I I I also I believe that video has it has a place and it's been underused. I think in in our genre, and I think that uh, Erica does top notch videos. I think she won last year. She'll probably win again this year. Uh, uh, and Aubrey and and Isabella also do great videos. And so I think that's an important element of the success. Now, of course, it doesn't hurt that we get to look at them for three and a half minutes while they're <laughs> in a music video, and that's an added selling point. But uh, but I think they've they've done really good jobs on both their their um, CD production and their video production. And I think you know that's in some ways that's been a um, a shortcoming shortcoming of the genre in part because people are focused on the songs uh, a lot, which, which is a great thing <laughs> for, right. for our listeners, but sometimes they're not focused. They're not, they're not holding us to, to the highest standards of production. And I think that has to happen. The DJs and we ourselves have to hold ourselves to a standard of production so that we don't end up being, you know, the, the redheaded stepchild of the music industry. We want to, you know, we want to be recognized as a serious genre. And if that's the case, you have to be matching the production quality of everybody else. Yeah. The, the time effort and money on production, like you said, is, is so important. Um, but the videos, you know, very few people ever made videos uh, in the genre. And now all of a sudden those ladies, like you said, they've kind of led the charge. And now you see, you know, Donnie and Johnny Ressler really working hard on a video. Uh, Dennis McCoggy is about to put out a video. It's, it's caught on as a thing yeah. now. So, and that's only going to help us find, help the genre find new fans. Uh, so, you know, cause a, a well done professional video is going to get passed around the internet a lot more than uh, a video of you in the corner at your local Mexican restaurant. That's just the right. way it is. Right. That was, that was one of the, I think I was one of the instigators for adding a video category for the awards because you know, not that not that I think that people should play to or write to awards, but the fact that there is a a category for videos says to our artists, this is important. We believe this to be important. We believe uh, uh, video to be an important element of promoting the genre, which is what awards are all about. Hey, y'all, this is Kitty Stedman from Drop Dead Dangerous. I want to thank you for listening to Trop Rock 101 podcast with Pirates and Poets. Pirates and Poets is a crucial platform for independent artists and writers, and they have been working tirelessly to make sure that we make it through this difficult time. Please show them your support as well by visiting piratesandpoets.net slash store or piratesandpoets.net slash donate. Cheers, y'all. So I want to... All due respect to the ladies we've been talking about, uh, I want to kind of talk more about you. Um, one of the interesting things, I was talking with somebody a while back, and I said, you know, it was something to do. I, th- I think it was to do with swim. And I said, they said, well, you know, Jerry's the only person that could get away with that. And I said, well, what do you mean? And they said, well, you know, A, he started meeting the minds, but also, you know, he's been around forever, and he, he does, he runs his own event, and he does all this to help other artists, you know. 
getting them in places, getting them in venues across Texas. And I said, you're right. And then I said, you know what else? Rob Hill could get away with it too. Because, and I say this with the utmost respect, both to Jerry and to you, in some ways you're like a West Coast version of, of Jerry in that you are a songwriter and uh, a performer, but in many cases you are putting other people ahead of yourself when it comes to promoting your own stuff. You you didn't start Laid Back Attack, but you ran it for several years and took it to a, you know, a level that it had never reached before. So I, I'd like to, I'd love to hear you talk about laid back attack and how you got involved with that, but also, you know, just about your own projects and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, um, laid back attack was, well, thank you for the comparison to Jerry Diaz. I'm sure I'm not worthy of that comparison and I'm not sure I could have gotten away with, with swim either. I'm not sure I, about oh. swim, but you know, I, I think, I think you can get away with a lot because you are, so very giving to other artists. Um, and some of that in the case of you and Jerry, both is that music is not your full-time job. You know, that gives you a chance, I guess, to be, uh, to, you don't have to fight for every last penny when you're on stage or at the merch table, the way some folks do. Right. Well, and for sure they're they're because I'm not reliant on, uh, music as my primary source of income, uh, that, that I certainly defer when it comes to how the, how the the, uh, the loot gets divvied up at the end of the tour or the night or whatever. It's like, <laughs> I, I definitely uh, keep in mind that some of my, some of my colleagues make their living doing this. And so, uh, and I, I, and my admiration for them in that regard is just endless because, it, because uh, it's not easy. <laughs> right. And the idea, you know, there, there are, there are people out there who think that musicians, well, isn't it, cushy and lucky that they get to do this thing that they love and, and make money at it. Well, <laughs> there, there are few and far between who, who do that successfully, but even beyond that, there are so much work that goes on uh, between the, uh, uh, the, the stage curtain <laughs> going up and the stage curtain going down. Uh, I mean, outside of that window where, where all the, the promotional work and the lugging equipment and all those things that, that, uh, that, that are uncompensated and very unglamorous to go on. And so people see this as being a glamorous way of making a living. It's but not. Most, yeah. Most of the, most of the, of the professional musicians that I know that, that make that their primary living um, uh, are doing it, not because this is the best way for them to make money. It's they're doing it because they really don't have a choice. I mean, it's not, they can't stop. And that's, that's the person most likely to succeed too, because they're driven to succeed. It's like, all I can do is play the guitar and sing. So I better figure out some way to make a living at it. And so uh, for, for people that, not just musicians, but anybody who follows a dream, an unlikely dream and a, and a, a, a creative dream. Uh, I just, uh, my admiration knows no limits for them. Um, so, um, and so, so I guess maybe that's what makes me giving in that regard is like, I love those people. I want to, I want to lift them up as much as I can. And so whatever power I have to, to, uh, make their road easier or to uh, lift their paths in any way that I can, I'm all over it. Um, then, uh, so your question about laid back attack, um, um, I, I mentioned that was my f- uh, I, I just missed that first laid back attack, um, but Brittany went to it and actually performed with Jerry on stage. Coincidentally, oh really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and um, and over the next couple of years, I became more involved in it. The next year, as an artist, because Brittany did her Dream and Blue album release at Laid Back Attack in 2014, um, and in subsequent years, I started becoming more involved in helping Phil Pompeo, who was the the, the main, uh, the big cheese, the head honcho. Uh, and then he uh, really needed to step back for his own. Uh, people have no idea how much work that is. And so uh, he uh, had reached or was approaching his limit anyway. Uh, and, and so from what, I think there was one year where I, where he and I co-chaired and with him really being in charge of me being assistant. And then another year where we, co-chaired and was flipped and I was more in charge and he was more of an assistant. Uh, and then I think the last year I took most of the laboring or, uh, and he was, he was uh, more of an advisor consultant, but he's the one who built it. 
and um, and I, I kind of just he did all the hard work and I and he got it into position for it. It was like him opening the pickle jar. It's like I was the one who actually opened it, but he had he had loosened it considerably for me. Uh, and but but I was really pleased with where we were able to take it because Laidback Attack had so many challenges that a lot of other festivals don't have. We were the, we were a small powered head club, um, isolated because there was no really other active club really within a thousand miles of us. There are some other smaller ones, but we were on our own. It's some of these festivals and. Florida and Texas, where there's a parrot head club every, you know, 600 feet. Right. <laughs> uh, that that they, they have large clubs that collaborate on these events, like Music on the Bay. And, uh, and so they're able to put on large events and spread labor out pretty well. I'm sure just like any event, there are, there are a handful of people doing a lot of the work. Uh, but uh, we were, we're put, we're, I think the last one drew 400 and some people 450 or something like that. And, uh, and you know, that's four times as many people were a member of the club at the time. And, and really only 10 or so of us were actively involved in the, in the event. And so when we were able to bring really the top acts in the genre consistently to the Northwest. You know, oh, the other challenge was we had a, the, the people that we wanted to come see the event. It's not like driving down the road <laughs> because our people were coming by air um, almost exclusively other than our own members. Uh, and so there people were coming a long way. And so we had to persuade them, this is what to do with your summer vacation this year. Uh, and, and, and so that, so that was a marketing challenge too. So, but, uh, but we were able to bring great acts. We had great, sound people, light people, uh, just merchandise people. We just try to make every aspect of it be as good as it possibly could be. And, and, uh, and we were able to, I think, pull that off. And certainly the years that I was involved in it, it was, you know, whatever problems there were, most people didn't know about, which is the key. You're going to have problems. The key is try to minimize anybody knowing about them. <laughs> right, exactly. Keep the problems backstage and away from the, the fans. So. Yeah. So 2018 was the last year, that it, and then it went on hiatus, but I hear rumors that it may be coming back. Um, those rumors are not started by me, so I, I, <laughs> I couldn't tell you if it's going to make its way back. And certainly, uh, not that I haven't been approached about, um, about the prospects of it, um, but I think the 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 events of 2020 pretty much put all kinds of <laughs> plans on hold. Let's see yeah. how this turns out before we plan a major event and invest tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah, let's see if 2021 even actually happens. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> oh well, I wish I could have made it out there. Um, I mean, everything you talk about, you know, just the fact that that everybody was flying in and and it was their summer vacation. You know, a, a lot of building an event is is you get people there with the assumption that you put on a good show, do a good job, and, you know, 20, 40 percent of those people are going to come back the next year. When people are coming from clear across the country, it doesn't matter how good of a job you do. They're not coming back the next year, you know, because right. just because of the expense and, and that kind of stuff. Right. So to grow an event, I mean, I, I guess I always thought that since you were in Seattle, a, a major league city that your club would have been, you know, I don't know, 200, 250 people, but apparently it wasn't. It was, it, it had a lot of uh, range depending, I think on upcoming Buffett shows and so forth. But I think we we're, you know, between 125 and 200 was probably our range. Still, it's impressive. And, and I heard so much, I, I never made it out there and I regret that, but I uh, heard so much good feedback from people about that event and, uh, I hope that it does come back at some point in the future because, I mean, there's a whole like quarter of the country landmass wise that has nothing. Now. Right. Fence to the West, I guess, is the closest event to to Washington State or even Oregon for that matter, probably. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to. Have, I don't say I'd love to bring laid back attack back, but I'd love to have an event in the Northwest, whether it be. Well, we're, Michelle and I, my girlfriend Michelle and I, are about to go to Montana and Wyoming, so. Not that, not that, not that those are necessarily the the uh, urban hubs for for a trap rock event. But I mean, it's all of this is beautiful country out here, and and if people who haven't been to the 
Pacific Northwest uh, and the, I guess the, well, I don't know if Wyoming and Montana are considered Pacific Northwest because they're nowhere near the Pacific, but they're driving distance and they're beautiful. Gotcha. I hope to see that part of the world sometime. So, so one of the things I think that, uh, that maybe helped you grow laid back attack and attract a national audience is the fact that you are somewhat of a genius at marketing and PR with a extremely humorous slant to it. Uh, you've helped Lone Star Lou out the last few years and I know you helped TRMA. Where did this whole humor marketing thing come from? Well, the humor thing, uh, certainly came from my dad who was not just a funny guy but a but a student of humor the science of humor he he dissected things why is this funny he'd read books about why something is funny he'd give me books about why something was funny those books were the least funny thing i've ever read they were so analytical <laughs> <laughs> and uh so the humor came from there it's kind of in the blood and also um uh I, I just, it's, I mentioned earlier, you know, my, my professional musician friends do that because do the music thing because they have no choice. It just happens and they have no control over it. They it's in, it's in their soul. Same thing with humor for me. So there's some, the humor becomes a part of almost everything I do. I'm as a lawyer. I'm, I'm can sometimes be known for my uh, borderline antics in a courtroom uh, and, <laughs> Although I've had judges occasionally, I've had some judges give me an, an evil eye, and some judges pull me out, pull me, uh, pull me aside, and tell me they really appreciate my humor in the courtroom. So it can go both ways. But I also wrote a, I also wrote a humor column for uh, uh, modestly syndicated in a few news weeklies back in the '90s, and I did uh, stand-up comedy from about 2002 to 2010 or 11 or so. Uh, not like professional, well, professionally, but not re- not regularly. I probably did maybe fifty to between fifty and a hundred shows uh, over my stand-up comedy career. So and and uh, and so between the marketing and the humor and the music, I was like, and uh, it just uh, it comes naturally. And yeah, people people pay attention to to things that are funny. <laughs> Uh, Photoshop, photoshopped pictures and fake headlines and uh, poking good-natured fun at each other, and that I've gotten a lot of praise for the for the work that I did promoting not only Laid Back Attack but also Lone Star Luau and TRMA generally. So, uh, how many tickets could we sell for a Rob Hill versus Bob Carwin courtroom showdown? <laughs> Well, you know, I think maybe it would be a debate. We'd have to pick an issue that was that was worthy of uh, <laughs> worthy of a Carwin Hill debate. I think we should make this happen at some event sometime. I, th- I, I think once, it would be a hit. I once did a debate at a music event because I because I had taken the position in a in a humor column that Neil Diamond was the worst songwriter of all time, mo- mostly because of the uh, not even the chair line from. Yeah, <laughs> I said, and and so some other musician took a contrary position, and we ended up setting up a debate at a tavern in the sometime in the mid '90s, I guess it was. It, it better, <laughs> the tavern had a better turnout for that debate than any other event they ever had. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious, man. We're gonna make it happen at some event. We're gonna have a instead of having you know like a songwriter ease into the day thing at 11 a.m. We're going to have a, a Bob Carwin, Rob Hill debate and just, yeah. Carwin, uh, Carwin kind of scares me though, because you know, it's not, he's not just a legal mind, which is a legal mind, but, um, but he's all, he also has a wit that is at least, at least matches mine. Plus he's got testicles that are way bigger than mine. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he does, he does have some, very large there's testicles. no, there's no filters there whatsoever. So he's a, he definitely would be a, uh, a challenging opponent in any arena, intellectual, <laughs> comedic, musical wrestling. He's a force to be reckoned with <laughs> <laughs> wrestling. Uh, wrestling. I wouldn't even, I wouldn't <laughs> even venture a challenge. <laughs> oh, so, uh, you know, bet- between the tours that you've done with, with Brittany, uh, your own stuff, um, your daughter a couple years ago, um, 
What are some of your more memorable stops and trips and events that you've attended? Share some moments from the road with us. Moments from the road. Well, <laughs> they, they probably would, I probably would collect them up and I'd say the, the moments from the road that are most memorable would mostly stack up as non unrelated to music. At the, the, the time we were in just outside of Calgary at a house concert. Uh, and I, I think that was just me and Brittany, Melanie, I don't think was with us on that one where we got through the, we got through the set and then it started hailing. This is the 4th of July in probably 2015 or 16. And it started hailing in like in a way that I could, I could only imagine was like uh, biblical. <laughs> these, I mean, to say they were the size of golf balls would probably be an understatement. It would, these were weapons, ice ball weapons firing out of the sky as we were trying to, to uh, return our equipment to the van. And uh, so that was, that was a, I don't know if that, that was a memorable, most memorable moment, but it was the one that came to mind first. There's been so many though that have been magical uh, and I, I guess the, the the first one that really there was a couple there were a couple when we first started doing house concerts. There was one where um, we had gone to the first the first few that we did really. It's like we did one. The first one we did was in Portland uh, in a backyard tiki bar, and I just remember you learn things along the way here. And as there was we as Brittany and I were doing this set, there was a woman. There was a woman there sitting at the bar who was looking at us the whole time and just seemingly just frowning like we were upsetting her in some way. And we both got to the end of the set and was like, but well, it seems like everybody's enjoying it. But what's with this woman over here who seems like she's angry at us for, it's like, well, I don't know, maybe we should just go over and talk to her. And so I figured, okay, we have an unhappy customer. Maybe I'll go talk to her and see if there's something else we can do. And we got there, and her frown turned around, got to her table. Her frown turned around, her face lit up, and she just started talking about how much she loved what we were doing. And so, uh, and so I learned there, okay, just because somebody is looking at you pensively, that doesn't mean <laughs> it. That doesn't mean anything negative. She might be enjoying the heck out of it. She might be enjoying it more than anybody. She's just processing it differently. Or maybe she just had one of those faces that always points down. Um, and then a couple days later, we were in uh, Twin Falls, Idaho, and we had done this backyard show for a couple that had, I think maybe had done one house concert before with Sonny Jim or somebody well-known. Um, and uh, and at the end of the show, Brittany just turned to me and she said, this is like, this is so early in her music career, basically before she had quit day jobs and things like this. And she just looked at me and she said, Rob, I love my effing job. <laughs> I don't think I could love it any more than I do. <laughs> and then, uh, and then on that same, this is the, this is the, the very beginning of the dream and blue tour. So, uh, she actually had quit her job by then, but um, this was the first time we had done a house concert tour. And uh, we ended up, uh, so we were, she wasn't well known at that time, but we managed to do uh, just the Western half of the United States. And we ended up doing a house concert at Isla Bella at Fred and Sarah Guerrero's place in Floresville, Texas. And that's where it kind of all came together. That's where we, um, we saw the possibilities because I don't know, I assume you've been to Fred and Sarah's place and, and you know that uh, when it comes to house concerts, they have it dialed in. They know what they're yes. doing. They, they, built they, it, they built it with a purpose. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and we got up and, and uh, performed and, and after the first song and when we were probably playing for, you know, 50 people, 47 of which who have never heard us or heard of us before but somebody down there had been to laid back attack and said y'all need to show up for this one and so people had shown up and after we played the first song all the women in the san antonio parrothead club came and placed their shoes right in front of the stage which apparently is their traditional way of saying we like what you're doing and we're staying until you're done <laughs> <laughs> and uh and then and that 
in that moment where we were, uh, we were uh, accustomed to that point as, as musicians to playing in bars, noisy crowds, people talking over us, having to work to get people's attention. And that I found myself tuning my guitar, probably dropping the D or dropping the E to a D or something like that, changing the tune of the guitar. I'm looking up at Brittany and going, are they listening to me tune? Because they were listening to me too. <laughs> and they were, uh, they were just, and so is, it changes the way you perform and the songs that you can select to know, hey, I don't have to do the songs that get people's attention. I, do the, I can do the songs that you play when you already have their attention and, and, and you know they're going to listen. And that, um, some, of the, some of the songs that, that I've written that I like the most are songs that I would never in a million years play in a bar because nobody would listen to it or appreciate it. It's just not the right atmosphere. So, uh, so when you're in that environment where people are face front and listening to the lyrics, it changes your repertoire. It changes your experience completely. And so that was a that was certainly a magical uh, time, at which we, um, which I ended up writing a song inspired by that moment. That's on my Beach Town album called uh, "A Moment Like This," which is about the experience of connecting with an audience, and uh, it's one of my favorite songs that I've written. And um, yeah, so and so that came out of that moment specifically but also kind of the general experience of the of the house concert atmosphere when it's done really well and you know some of the had memorable images etched in my mind of places like casa tortuga in in uh, uh, san diego or just outside of san diego kevin and tish distance place where they also have some stuff dialed in there with the uh with the atmosphere and it's basically their backyard is an amphitheater and uh, with a water feature and a rock feature and you're uh, performing there and looking at your reflection in the water before you. And uh, it's a, it's a, that's a magical place as well. So some of these people with their house concert venues have just said, I'd rather play there than in an arena. Um, yeah. So I, but I also remember that some of the, some of the, uh, the challenges of the road that uh, are about the road itself really is like I had booked the tour that I booked in 2015 with Brittany and Melanie was sick. When I posted the, the dates uh, on, on Facebook or whatever, I got messages from, from musician friends and other people, other music business people that would say, they would either say, wow, that's, brilliant what you put together there and others particularly those who had done it before said are you crazy (laughs) (laughs) because we had uh that was the year we did uh the main part of the tour was a six-week block so 42 days we had 33 shows booked and we are driving 20,000 miles in between the shows and so there were there was nothing like an, an actual day off when there's something that's a day off would probably meant we were driving for 12 hours. Uh, so it was, it was brutal. And, and, uh, and, and it proved to be brutal because you, because you don't, especially when you're doing that kind of thing uh, for the first, it wasn't really the first time I booked a tour, but it was the first time I tried to do it as a real profit making, you know, economically viable thing, which meant we can't have too many off days because then you're spending money without making money. Uh, but you don't plan for the allergy attacks, the illnesses, the the positive test for pneumonia, the uh, all of these things that come <laughs> into play. Uh, the, you know, the, of course, you know, you have to worry about uh, car problems, uh, equipment failures, and those kinds of things. But the, the challenges of, drive, of, of getting in a car, getting out 10 hours later in a completely different environment with different trees and plants, and get into your head, and now all of a sudden everybody's got stuffed up noses and they've got to go sing that night. And that you just don't think about all those things. Yeah, and, and most so, of your shows are probably outside. So. Yep, yep. Uh, but we, anyway, there was, there was, a, there was a, a stretch where we, um, where I had booked uh, towards the end of the tour, and and I said this one's going to be challenging. I think I'm going to run. I think I'm going to run this past Brittany and Melanie first before I agree to this because we've been wanting to play in Iowa 
but I had left a message at the wrong email address or phone number or something, and so had not gotten a call back until late in the booking process. And the only thing we could do was to was to drive directly back up from from a week from a, a, a Saturday night or a Friday night in outside of St. Louis was Saturday day in which we did two shows in Dallas, one in the afternoon, one in the evening, and directly into the car to drive 13 and a half hours to do a Sunday afternoon show in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, which Ooh. was crazy. And, and, but I got, fortunately I got there okay in advance before they really understood just how crazy that was. And so we basically did a show. We did four shows in about 40 hours and drove, I, get, I would guess it was 2,000 miles, but it was, it was St. Louis to Dallas to Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and did four shows in those 40 hours. And by the time that was over, <laughs> we needed a nap. Did, uh, did Brittany fire her booking agent after that? <laughs> that, was probably the, that was probably the beginning of the end. I think <laughs> she gave me a chance to book one more tour, <laughs> which I did very differently. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So, uh, what's, uh, of course, and in, in everything in the whole world depends on COVID, what happens. But uh, in a perfect world, what's coming up in the next year, year and a half for you? New album? Tour well, next year, if the world cooperates? What's up? I think I have one more album in me. And uh, I'd like to get that out next year. I have, I mean, I have recording a recording studio here in my law office doesn't everybody um so i have the the resources to do it it's really more of a, a getting the material to do it because i i need to i'm not a prolific writer i think the songs i write are good but unfortunately i do so much self-editing along the process that that you know it's it'll take me four years to write to write uh, 12 good songs instead of you know, the Donnie Brewers and the Tom Shepherds of the world will write 12 songs in a weekend. And even though nine of them might suck, if you write three good songs in a weekend, you've had a good weekend. Yeah. <laughs> so, so these guys have it dialed into where the songwriting process, they understand that the songwriting process is partly about letting yourself suck, I think. To, and those you're going to edit out those songs that don't make the cut. But for me, I've not, I've not quite uh, grasped that the art of, of, uh, of free writing, I guess it would be just, you know, it's better to write crap than to write nothing. And, and Hemingway himself said the first draft of anything is shit. So, um, (laughs) I, I I wish I could write more, um, write faster like those guys do. But so it takes me a while. I think maybe by, by sometime next year, I'll have enough material to do another record or, or whatever it might be, a flash drive, uh, a, 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 an email. I don't know. Whatever <laughs> I don't know. It is. Take the form of a, you know, and it could be anything from a 12 inch vinyl to a, to a flash drive. <laughs> uh, and then uh, I don't know that I, I don't know that I have it in me to do a, a 20,000 mile driving tour again. Three of those was a lot. <laughs> uh, is it three? It's almost, that's four, actually. Um, so uh, we'll see. I mean, I love playing and I love, I love touring, but it just it takes a lot out of you. <laughs> in, in, mo- in moderation. <laughs> in moderation, right. Well, that's what I always do. It's like, okay, I'm just carve out this six-week time frame and just do it here. So how did you – I mean, I, I know that you own your own law practice, so you are your own boss to a certain extent. Um, but how do you? How did you just walk away from a law practice and hit the road for that long of time? Well, part of it is that I'm never completely disconnected, and so there's times when I've been riding around the back of the tour van, having a telephone hearing, appearing in court in Thurston County, Washington, um, and so I'm I'm still. I still have to get myself switched from from right brain to to left in the middle of a of a of a drive from Cedar Rapids to Cleveland, but um, but that's part of it. But also, I think I've kind of been uh, 
more or less in the in the semi retirement mode. It's probably more better described as just part time. I've been really for several years been working but working like present in the office maybe eight months of the year. Not not that I take four months consecutive consecutively off, but I take a lot of time off and either go to Mexico or or do music or lately it's been mostly doing music. So yeah, I've been I've been getting everybody sort of accustomed to my absence. Gotcha. <laughs> so uh enjoy talking with you. Hopefully I will see you in person uh sometime soon. Um, yeah. But we always close Trap Rock 101 with some rapid fire questions. So are you ready? Ready. All right. What's your favorite Jimmy Buffett song? Uh, uh Banana Republic. Ah, good one. What's your favorite cocktail? I just the cocktail that comes to mind now. I'm my my most frequent cocktail is a Jack Daniels and Diet Coke. I I'm kind of enjoying if you can hear the ice cube there. I can. This this was a Godfather, which is half Scotch and half amaretto, which what it's what Pacino drank in the scene where I believe right. he had the gun stored in the bathroom and came out and killed the guy there. <laughs> so, uh, what is your favorite trap rock song by an independent artist? You you and Brittany are not eligible. Okay. Mm. I probably would answer this question differently a hundred times, but at the moment it would be, it would be Erica's and, and uh, Aubrey's lighthouse song. Okay. So we gotta, we gotta get on them to get that recorded and, yes. and put out into the world. So Kenny Chesney or Bob Marley. Oof. I love them both, but I'll, I, I, for historical reasons, I'll take Marley. All right. A uh, album from outside the trap rock genre that you think everyone should know about and go go here. Ooh, well, I mean, you're asking me for for a well kept secret. I think I would say I, that's a well kept secret. Yeah. Okay. Um, see, these are the things that that that, that if you asked me well in advance. I, I have to say this is not a well-kept secret, but it's probably not on very many desert island lists, is Little Feet's Let It Roll. Ooh, I, I think that this is the first time Little Feet has really been mentioned on the podcast. So. <laughs> All right, zeroing in a little bit, what is your favorite full-blown Buffett album? Uh, I don't say that. I couldn't say that I have one. All right, pass on that one. Favorite beach? My favorite beach is a uh, is in San Pancho, Mexico, and I think it's just called San Pancho Beach. I don't. And it's a uh, it's San it's also uh, it's San Pancho is the nickname of the town. It's actually San Francisco. It's in the state of Nayarit. It's about uh, one hour north of Puerto Vallarta. Yeah. Yeah. See, all you West Coast people, I've realized this uh, as I've gotten to know Carwin. All of the West Coast people go to the West Coast of Mexico. It makes perfect sense, but it doesn't to my Texas mind, you know. <laughs> and uh, the big question that we always end with, if you could create a Mount Rushmore of independent trap rock artists, what four people would you put on that Mount Rushmore? Okay, let's let's get the, this is the question. Who do I think? Who do I think? think are the giants or who do who in my personal opinion are the giants in your personal opinion okay uh jesse rice tom shepherd uh it always gets tough around three or four kelly mcguire and i'm just gonna i'm just um this is a predictive one um but i will well the I'm sorry, Kelly, get out of the way because I got to put Brittany on the list. Sorry. <laughs> Kelly gets honorable mention. Uh, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to be predictive now and say that, that uh, uh, Aubrey wallet will occupy one of my Mount Rushmore slots. All right. That's, that's a pretty big, no offense to Aubrey, but knocking Kelly Mac off or <laughs> most anybody, but, but uh, I, I, well here, but here's the thing with Kelly. As great as he is, there is maybe 
a quarter of his stuff is is actually trap rock, and he's as, as Melanie once described him. He's he's basically a cowboy. He's got some sand on his boots. <laughs> I like that. And uh, the the final question: If you could add one more person to that Mount Rushmore, someone from the community but not a musician, who would it be? Oh, radio event producers, well, just the hardcore. Well, it's, it's like got, well, it has to be Jeff Allen. There are, there are many great candidates, but really it's like comparing when you, when you, when you ask the question, who's the best baseball player of all time, you can say, well, first there's Babe Ruth. Now we can talk about everybody else just because he was pitcher and an out and a uh, hitter. But I think Jeff Allen's in a, in a historic, in the, in the genre, he's in a historical class by himself. I would totally agree with that. So Rob Hill, thank you very much for joining us. Always enjoy talking with you, and uh, we will see you soon. Thank you, sir.